Let me just say a word of welcome to those who are worshiping with us this morning by way of live streaming. We are glad that you tune in when you can. We know that many of you would love to, to be here among us if you were physically capable of doing that, but we very much consider you a part of the life and work of this congregation, whether you're here or away. But uh, continue to worship with us on Sunday as you're able. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you didn't know when you came in, you certainly know by now that this is Reformation Sunday, celebrated around the world by people who have a Protestant heritage and appreciation for that aspect of the life and work of uh, uh, the Christian church throughout history. It's always celebrated on the Sunday prior to October 31st, which was the day that Martin Luther, as Lisa reminded us, put his 95 theses up on the door of the Wittenberg church. His complaints, his issues with the church of his day. Martin Luther was not setting out to form a new church by any stretch of the imagination. To the contrary, he simply wanted to reform the church according to the word of God as he was given to understand it. He believed that there were many corrupt practices and ideas and beliefs in the church that did not have the support of Scripture. And he wanted to enter into a debate about those things with the church. But, of course, soon a price was placed on his head and he went into hiding at the Coburg Castle and other places to avoid being arrested and put to death. A lot of people regard this as the spot, uh, spark that set off the fire of the Protestant Reformation. And to some degree it was because it really spread rapidly after this. Uh, but it didn't begin with Luther. Uh, it's hard to say when it began. But there was John Wycliffe in England who devoted his life to trying to get the scriptures into the common language of the people. And there was a price put on his head. And... Uh, uh, he had to fight the church because uh, he wanted people, the common person, to be able to read the scriptures and interpret them in their own language. And he was so detested by the church that even after he had died, when they found out where he was buried, the church went and dug up his bones and burned them and threw them into the river long after his death. Uh, but there was Wycliffe in England. There was John Huss in Bohemia. And other voices through the generations were added. Uh, some about the time of Luther. John Calvin in Geneva, whom we regard kind of as the father of the Presbyterian and Reformed movement in the Protestant Reformation. And other people. John Knox, who studied under Calvin and then went back to Scotland and carried the Reformation there. Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich and many others that we could call attention to. But our congregation uses this day, this Reformation Sunday, also to recognize and celebrate those reforming persons in our own tradition of Protestantism, the Reformed tradition. You know that in most places around the world, people like us are not called Presbyterian. They're called Reformed. Uh, we use the word Presbyterian in some English-speaking countries, but in other places in the world, it's the Hungarian Reformed Church, the Swiss Reformed Church. Uh, so that's people who share the same creeds and organize their churches in the same way as we do as Presbyterians uh, here in this country. And there are many Reformed churches here, the Reformed Church in America and, and others who are uh, first cousins with us as Presbyterians. So this day affords me the opportunity at least to 
give thanks to these persons and how we have benefited from their sacrificial labors. Uh, from Geneva, the Reformed tradition went throughout Europe uh, into the Isles, the British Isles, to Scotland through the efforts of John Knox, ultimately to Ulster in Northern Ireland. And so many of those Scots and Scots-Irish from Ulster came to the shores of America and brought their Presbyterian faith and traditions here. And they moved uh, down the Valley of Virginia and established uh, schools and churches wherever they went and that's a part of the history of this congregation I was reading just this week uh, the history of our church here and of the first minister who was called Father Paisley now that's an Irish name he must have been I don't know this but I, uh, someone maybe can discern whether or not he was uh, an Ulster Scot himself um, who came to this country and he did what all Presbyterian and Reformed ministers did he not only started churches, he started schools. Father Paisley started two academies here in Greensboro, one for boys and one for girls. And wherever the Reformed and Presbyterian movement went, education was critically important. And they believed in something that I'm talking about this morning that they referred to as the life of the mind as the service of God. The life of the mind as the service of God. And where does this begin? It's hard to say, but it at least goes back to Jesus. If you were listening carefully as Murphy read our lesson from Mark this morning, the situation is this. There are some learned scholars of Israel that are debating a scriptural point. And one of them notices that Jesus is nearby. This young rabbi who's reputed to be such a scholar and so popular among the hoi polloi, they want his uh, input on this question. And so they ask him, what is the first commandment? Which is to say, what is the most important commandment? And he quotes the most sacred verse uh, in all of Judaism. The choir sang it this morning straight out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel. It's called the Shema because uh, in Hebrew it would be Shema Israel. means listen. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is one. The Lord our God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now Jesus changes that a little and I'll talk about that momentarily. But then Jesus adds a secondary instruction. The next is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from the book of Leviticus. So here Jesus gives a summary of the law. If you want to read it... Uh, with the law and with Jesus' summary, you can open to page 36 in the front of your hymnal where the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are there, and then Jesus' summary of the law. And in a sense, Jesus is saying you can summarize both tablets of the law. The first four commandments have to do with our love of God and our duty to God. The next six commandments have to do with our love of and our duty to our fellow man and woman or woman. So there are two tablets of the law, how we honor and serve God, how we honor and serve our neighbor. And Jesus sums it up in loving. Loving God above all else. Loving God, uh, your neighbor as you wish to be loved. However, if you notice carefully what Jesus is saying here, this is what's interesting because he changes the Shema. He adds something to it. In Israel, they would say, we are to love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. But Jesus says, with our minds, we're to love the Lord with our minds. 
It's shocking, really, when you think about it. First, it's shocking that none of these religious scribes, lawyers in the group, corrected Jesus. That he, and the second is that he had the audacity and the authority to change this central verse of Judaism that they recited daily. When they go in and out of their homes, they touch a mezuzah on the doorpost of the house. And what's in that little mezuzah is the Shema, reminding them of their duties to God. First of all, loving God and sharing this, your household, with your children and with others. So Jesus has the audacity to expand the Shema and he has the authority to expand it. The life of the mind as the service of God. This sacred conviction has informed and inspired the Reformed Church throughout its history. We have tended to be people who as much as any other group, perhaps more than most, support education and excellence in education. It is one of the hallmarks of our Presbyterian and Reformed heritage. And therefore, whenever Presbyterian and Reformed disciples moved out into the world, they not only established churches, they established schools, and some of the earliest churches served also as schools. Father Paisley himself was educated by David Caldwell, another Scotsman who had an academy here in, in Greensboro. Then he established academies of his own. And these academies were not just to teach the people how to read and write so that they could read and understand the scriptures, but what they taught the people was the whole range of the liberal arts and sciences. They taught math. They taught science as they understood it. They taught history. Because they believed that the whole person needed to be educated. That the task of education in the church was not just to teach people what to think, but to teach people how to think. And that's what the Presbyterian Church has attempted to do in nearly all of the institutions they have established over the years. Now granted, education and knowledge will not in and of themselves make you a disciple. And yet, it will make you a better disciple. It should make you a more effective disciple. It should make you a more informed disciple as well. We are to use our reasoning capacities, our mentality, our minds in order to better serve God and neighbor. When Keith was ordained yesterday afternoon, as any elder is ordained in the Presbyterian Church, they're asked a question, will you serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination and love energy imagination and love are not sufficient intelligence is necessary and important as well now do we take this part of our heritage as seriously as we should what's the state of our education and our commitment to it as a people now, to be quite candid about it, the Pre not the, the Presbyterian church Presbyterian church too but all churches and Christendom in particular has a rather blemished record when it comes to knowledge and education. We know the horror stories from early church history about how the church tried to deal with Copernicus or Galileo or Darwin when they made some new discovery and were opposed by the church because it was contrary to the perceived interpretation of Scripture in their own day. They ran into animosity to attack 
to imprisonment. So the church often has been threatened by new knowledge and new understandings of the truth and have often found themselves on the wrong side of the issue, opposing the new information and the new truth that the Lord God is bringing to bear upon our life and times. And because of this sad chapter in the history of the church, it does little to dispel the myth that is so popular among a lot of people outside the church today, and that is that the Christian church and the Christian faith and Christian people are anti-intellectual. They're afraid to use their minds. Many people believe that there is emerging about us and maybe within us a new anti-intellectualism in the contemporary Christian church. A lot of people have spoken of this. One very conservative Reformed theologian that I don't agree with on a lot of things is called, his name is R.C. Sproul. But I like this, which he wrote. He said, we live in a day in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. We must have passion, of course, indeed hearts on fire for the things of God, but that passion must resist with intensity the anti-intellectual spirit of the world. One recent poll on religion revealed that there's been a revival of feelings among Christian people, but not a revival in the knowledge and understanding of God. And the church today so often, and many of its people, seem to be guided more by a sense of feeling than by their convictions that are actually informed by Scripture. Yes, by experience, but by history and by science. We pay attention to all of those disciplines, of course. And yet, not everyone does so. So many people base what they believe today simply on It's an emotional thing. Well, this is what I feel about it. But they can't defend it on their basis of their understanding of the Word of God or the best of history or science or anything else. Now, if this is a valid assessment of what's going on in the church and in the world today, John Calvin, were he alive, would be among the first to object No theologian has done more than Calvin to promote the life of the mind as the service of God. Calvin was a humanist, not one of the dreaded secular humanists that's so despised by the religious press, but he was a humanist nonetheless, a Christian humanist. He studied classical language, jurisprudence. He was preparing to be an attorney early in his life. He studied literature He was convinced that a good education produced sound intelligence, increased moral sensibility, and created even refined taste among the populace. In his theological masterpiece, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he praises the classical writers and what they discovered and called attention to, even though they may not have been part of the church, even though they may not have been Christian. One paragraph from his institutes is entitled, Science as God's Gift. And this is what he says. Whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, We shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear. 
unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. For by holding the gifts of the Spirit in slight esteem, we condemn the Spirit himself. We cannot read the writings of the ancients on these matters, referring to philosophy and law and medicine, mathematical sciences, without great admiration. Indeed, we marvel at them. So John Calvin recognized what the Christian community and what the Presbyterian church in their better moments have affirmed and taught, and that is that truth from any source, secular or sacred, is God's truth. All truth is God's truth wherever it comes from. And God has given us the gift of intelligence, of insight, of learning, and of discovery. And we are to to apply these gifts to the very best of our ability. And Calvin not only believed this, but he worked for it. It was John Calvin in Geneva who established the first public school, if you will, Calvin's Academy in Geneva, where all of these disciplines were taught, and not just to children who could afford tuition. This was a public school for any child living in Geneva. Didn't matter their physical or monetary circumstances. They were welcome to come and study at his, cab, at his academy. And the influence of that academy cannot be overstated. It so influenced how education went forward in the West. People came there, studied under the Calvin, and they took his ideas to other parts of the world like John Knox in Scotland. And the Scottish universities became the premier universities in all the world. You can even read today where the royals often go to Scotland to study to get their degrees. It influenced other uh, Huguenot academies in France. It influenced the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Wonderful educational institutions that were educating the whole person. They not only did religious instruction, but instruction in all of the arts and sciences. And yet I wonder, do we as a church today continue to share Calvin's commitment to the life of the mind as service to God? Does this heritage continue to be a hallmark of the church today, even our church here in Greensboro? I certainly hope it does, but there's some implications if we take this view of education and knowledge seriously. To begin with, if we believe and affirm the life of the mind as the service of God, then this means that the pursuit of higher learning, sound scholarship, is a noble calling, even a holy one. And consequently, we as a people must be intolerant of inferior education, of poor scholarship, of mediocre schools, and of shabby study habits by students or teachers alike. There are few issues that are more important in any community than the state and caliber of public education. There are few issues that are more important on the national scene. And education deserves our best thinking and our most sacrificial efforts. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. That's not just the motto of the National Negro College Fund, but a profound conviction that ought to be the motto of each and every one of us. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Secondly, 
If we take seriously the life of the mind as service to God, then perhaps we will agree with John Calvin when he argues that secular learning is to be cultivated in accordance with its own nature. What does that mean? That means that the natural sciences, the arts, and other disciplines are to develop in accordance with their own standards and methodologies, and therefore it is inappropriate for any church, for any religion, for any belief system to set bounds beyond which these disciplines are not to venture. The church was wrong in opposing Copernicus and Galileo when their scientific inquiry and their scholarship convinced them that the Ptolemaic system of the universe was inaccurate, even though it seemed to jive best with their own particular interpretation of Scripture at the time. And yet, if it was a truth, then it was a truth from God, even if it comes from outside the church or outside the Scriptures. All truth, again, is God's truth. One writer has put it this way, neither the believer nor the non-believer condones all research and all opinions, but this does not mean that the church must, must seek to conform all the arts and sciences to its own understandings. We are participants in the search for truth, and God will be the ultimate arbiter. We share common ground with all who would teach and learn. Therefore, it's inappropriate. Whenever you see some church, some denomination, some branch of Christendom trying to determine what goes in the textbooks of a school, it's inappropriate. They're to have their own standards, which we are free to assess critically if we've developed our own mental capacities as people of faith. Thirdly, because learning liberates and ignorance enslaves, and because the mind is a gift of God, deserving nurture and growth, the Presbyterian Church from its inception has strongly commended education to all people within the church, laity and ministers alike, young and old alike. We disdain all magic, all anti-intellectual religion, and we agree with the early fathers of the church that faith must always seek understanding. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. The life of the mind as service to God. Is this a tradition we continue to value, to uphold, to protect? If so, are we willing to give teachers their due, their respect, their admiration in the community as well as in the church? Are we willing to become more knowledgeable and competent enough to take a turn in teaching? One of the dreams I've always had, I've never seen it employed, of the church is for at least every elder in the church to become an expert on something that they could teach. Pick a book of the Bible, pick a doctrine, pick an aspect of church history and learn enough about it so that you can teach it to other people. We would never be without teachers, Donna, if we took this task seriously. There would always be people to inform us and to instruct us. But a lot of people today simply don't feel the need to get more education. To be a disciple. One of the reasons we ask a question on our, in our revival season commitment, would you be willing to participate in a class, a small group, a Bible study, a Sunday school class, whatever, so that you can grow more in your own life as a disciple? You know, to be a disciple means you're a student. 
Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That means you're a, a student of Jesus Christ. You can be a disciple of Karl Marx, a disciple of Vince Lombardi. You can be a disciple of a lot of people. You try to learn how and why they did what they did but so that that can influence you. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you striving to understand what he taught, how he lived, what he did? It seems that fewer and fewer Christians are willing to make the commitment to study and to learn to read and study scripture, to struggle with the faith and the teachings of the church, to honestly and critically investigate various dimensions of the truth and the implications thereof, truth from scripture, truth from science, truth from any realm. Are people willing to inquire about their own convictions? On what basis do they hold these? And are they ready to defend the faith that is within them? There's a passage in 1 Peter that says, Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and with reverence. Can you do that? Can you explain to your neighbor, to your colleague at work, to your children or your grandchildren, not only what you believe, but on what basis you believe it? We're charged to do that. Across this nation and throughout the Presbyterian Church as well. Sunday school enrollment is on a vast decline. Biblical illiteracy is up, even among people who consider themselves devout uh, disciples. And if this trend continues, my friends, can we ever hope to look honestly and rationally, intelligently and faithfully and biblically at the many issues and ideas that are bombarding us day in and day out in contemporary culture. Frankly, I do not think we will be able to withstand unless and until you and I are willing to do our part to reverse the trend. Unless you and I are willing to see our own education, the education of our children and the education of others as a priority in life. Unless you and I, by our words and our actions, demonstrate that the life of the mind really is service to God and a centrally important aspect of our faith. May God help us in this endeavor and may God give us the courage of our convictions. Our ancestors in the Reformed faith would be rightly pleased and honored by this continuing commitment. Let us pray. Give us the grace, O oh God, to serve you and to love you with the very best of our mental capacities, to the glory of your name and to the good of all your children. Amen.